The gospel passage that we read from John this morning describes the very last thing that happens before Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and killed. Jesus has been teaching the disciples, explaining things to them, telling them of the things to come. But after all of that, Jesus turns to prayer. Now, I have a feeling that the disciples were meant to overhear this prayer, and it is a sort of continuation of the things that Jesus wants to make sure that they understand. But nevertheless, I hear a whisper of surrender in Jesus' words. There is a sense that in this moment, Jesus loosens his grasp on the disciples and starts to let them go their own way, knowing that he won't be able to protect them any longer. The disciples have followed Jesus to a place from which there is no turning back, a place that sets them apart from the rest of the world. And now Jesus has to leave them there to fend for themselves. It's no wonder that the human Jesus seems to be struggling with this. These are his friends, the people he has lived with day in and day out for years. And now he has to leave them. Jesus says in his prayer that although he is leaving, the disciples remain in the world. He prays, the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Jesus is praying for his friends because he knows that throughout his ministry, he has revealed to them fundamental truths about a God who loves the world so much that she would take on human form and walk around in all this mess with us for a while, just for the chance to be in deeper relationship with us. The truth that God's dream for us is not to wield power over one another and amass riches, but to live in such a way that everyone experiences a life of abundance. These are the kinds of truths that once seen can't be unseen. These are the kinds of truths that once seen fundamentally change the ones who have seen them, rendering them incompatible with much of the world around them. This is what leads to the primary tension in this passage. How can we live and move and have our being in this world if we don't belong to it? How can we who have been witnesses to the fundamental truth of the love of God made known to us in Jesus live in a world that rejects that truth? A world where money and power are more revered than mercy and humility. A world where violence is continually perpetrated against the innocent. A world where the life of the planet and all the people who live on it aren't considered sacred. One temptation is to attempt to separate ourselves from the rest of the world and wait it out in isolation until Jesus comes back for us. We certainly wouldn't be the first people to try that. There's a huge problem with that plan. That's not what Jesus would do. Like, not even close. 
If we are Christians, if we claim to follow Christ, that means that we must always strive to model our own lives after the life of Jesus Christ. And while I know that the world we live in today is vastly different from the world that Jesus lived in, this much I know is true. Jesus walked directly into the messy, death-dealing, power-obsessed fray and never looked back. And we have to do the same. Jesus doesn't try to secret people away and hide them in caves and deserts to form isolated groups and create a new society. Jesus walks directly into the temples and town squares. He finds people in lakeside fishing communities and drawing water from communal wells. He goes to all of the places where people are going about their lives and shows them another way. He turns over their idolatrous tables. He teaches them about mercy and heals them. He asks them to follow him and he gives them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Why? Because Jesus knows that this world, that we, in all of our messiness, in all of our sinfulness, can be transformed. Jesus knows that we have the capacity for love, for justice, and for mercy. And Jesus knows that once we've experienced the redeeming love of God for ourselves, that we'll have no other path forward than to carry that transformative love into all of the broken, violent, and unjust places of our world, changing them little by little so that they more closely resemble God's realm. You know, the one that Jesus is always carrying on about, where no one is hurting, no one is hungry, no one is lonely, and everyone has life in abundance. I have to wonder, though, when I read this prayer, if Jesus is asking himself if he has done enough. He knows that his time on earth in the human person of Jesus is coming to a close. And despite the fact that the rest of the story of his triumph over death is yet to come, I wonder if he has that nagging sense, the same one that I sometimes get, that he hasn't done enough. Maybe that's why when he prays in this passage, he's so rambly and almost desperate sounding. I mean, how many times have I thought to myself, if only I had more time, I could do something different, something better could make more of an impact. I wonder if this is what Jesus is thinking as he prays. But although Jesus may be departing from his followers in the physical sense, he leaves them behind with everything that they need to carry on his teachings and share the transformative love of God with the world. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus leaves us with a game plan, and it goes kind of like this. One, above all, believe that this world can be transformed by the love of God. Two, go where people are hurting and in need of healing, and be with them, spend time with them, and love them.
Three, do everything in your power to participate in their healing and thriving. Four, feed people. Five, tell people that the death-dealing ways of this world are not the only ways. And six, lead with justice, love, and mercy. Now, this is just a game plan, an outline. It looks different for each one of us, and it looks different on any given day, because the adversaries to this way of life are many and varied, and each have their own strategy to try to defeat it. So I invite you to think for a moment about a specific way that you can live into this game plan in your own life. Where are our temples and town squares? Where are our centers of commerce and from what wells do we draw? What idolatrous tables need overturning? What economies need reforming? Where do you see people in need of healing? What power do you have to participate in their healing? What message do you broadcast to your small part of the world about who God is and what her dream is for the flourishing of all people? Maybe it's donating money to a bail fund for an incarcerated person. Maybe it's Project Sandwich or Open Door Dinner. Maybe it's creating art or music to inspire transformation. Maybe it's speaking out against the injustices in our society. This list could go on forever. The hard part here, though, is that it will likely feel like we've never done enough. Like the world's problems are just too big and too intractable that nothing we do will make a difference anyway. But to that, I say, let's return to step one of Jesus's game plan. Above all, believe that this world can be transformed by the love of God. And when we can't believe it, trust that simply wanting to believe it will suffice. Jesus believed it. He showed us glimpses of it. And he sends us out into the world in the same way that he was sent. And Jesus prays for us, knowing that while the world might reject the dream of God's realm, ours is still a world worth fighting for. And God's dream is still one that has the capacity to be realized in us.